Last week, we finished our sermon series on the Old Testament book of Esther. And so now we find ourselves in between uh, the next series that we will begin uh, the first Sunday of May. That series will be called Sent, and we'll be considering the themes of how um, the Holy Spirit uh, invades our lives and empowers us and sends us out to live as disciples of Jesus in all of life. But in the meantime, what we're going to do is this morning, we are going to look at this passage about the triumphal entry of Jesus that sets into motion the beginning of what we refer to as Holy Week. And then, of course, next Sunday is Easter Sunday, so we will consider uh, the theme of the resurrection, particularly from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But as I mentioned, the triumphal entry is really the beginning of the sequence, the beginning of the events surrounding the final week uh, of Jesus' life. Uh, He uh, has very specific intentions in this entry into Jerusalem. As we're going to see, he he wants to declare and proclaim certain things about his identity that he wants the people to grasp and know about him. And so what I want to do for us is I want to read these first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 21, and then we'll get into it together. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's take a moment to pray. Holy Spirit, we believe that you are here, that you are present with us. Our prayer is simple, that you would draw us into this narrative and that you would help us to see Jesus as he wants us to see him, as he wants us to be known. And we pray that you would accomplish your purposes uh, regardless of where we find ourselves in this moment, whether we are believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe. We pray in and through the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to attend a Sixers game. I know that that is not, probably not the best topic of conversation today. After yesterday's game, if you are into basketball and into the Sixers in particular, but at least a couple of weeks ago, there was a lot of anticipation, expectation, excitement. Uh, we were nearing the, uh, the end of the season, and the anticipation was there for what the playoffs would hold. And if you've ever been to a sporting event, you will... Um, understand some of the dynamics that I am talking about. But uh, on this particular night, um, along with all of the normal pomp and circumstance, the multi-sensory pregame ceremony and introduction of the teams, 
there happened to be another big uh, deal that was going on that night. Uh, Back at the end of February, the Phillies, Philadelphia's baseball team, signed a guy by the name of Bryce Harper, who is one of the probably best-known baseball players in Major League Baseball. Um, And so that was a big deal, and there's been all this hype surrounding him and the Phillies uh, going on in spring trading. But uh, leading up to the Sixers game, on the evening that I was going, uh, word started to leak out that they thought that Bryce Harper would be ringing the bell that night. Now, what that means is that the Sixers, for every home game, they have uh, somebody, usually uh, celebrities, who before the game, after the players have been uh, introduced, right before tip-off, they have a, a little Liberty Bell that they bring out to center court, and this person comes out and just rings the bell uh, to kind of begin the game. Well, sure enough, uh, as this was being introduced, uh, the uh, announcer uh, over the PA system announced that it was Bryce Harper indeed. And so you can imagine that the crowd went crazy. Bryce Harper came out and rang the bell, and everyone was unbelievably hyped to begin the game in which the Sixers blew at the end. But that's another story for another day, not another sermon. Uh, I'll um, not drag you into that, especially if you don't care. But my point here is we've all had these kinds of experiences, right? Um, Whether it's a sporting event, a parade, whatever it might be in which there is a lot of pomp and circumstance, a lot of hype, a, a lot of activity leading up to a particular moment or event. And typically, there are things that we associate with this. And so For example, from my perspective, I would say that everything unfolded in the way that I thought. Well, we come to Matthew chapter 21 this morning. We come to the triumphal entry of Jesus. And in many ways, this is deserving of um, all of the pomp and circumstance imaginable. And we get some of that. But at the same time, there is something highly unusual going on here. It's not what you would expect um, to have happen, or at least the details surrounding it. So I want to look at this together, and the question that we're really going to ask ourselves this morning about Jesus is this, who is he? Who is this? And we're going to answer that question in two ways. He is king, and he is savior. Jesus clearly identifies himself as king in this narrative. And wants the people, the crowds of Jerusalem that are present, he wants them too to identify him as king. That's very clear as we move through this text together. Verse 1, we're told that now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Bethphage was located less than a mile east of Jerusalem. It was on the southwest slope of the Mount of Olives, And the Mount of Olives is a ridge about two and a half miles long. It rises to a height of about 2,700 feet, so pretty large, and it's known for its many olive trees. It's where it gets the name, the Mount of Olives. And the view from its summit is breathtaking as it directly overlooks the temple area in Jerusalem. Now, we're going to make a couple Old Testament connections, both from the same book, both from a book that we probably aren't that familiar with, and that is the prophetical book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter, 20, uh, in chapter 14 in the Old Testament, it prophesies that when the Messiah would come, he would set up his earthly kingdom 
and he would come to the Mount of Olives in particular. And so the Jews knew of this prophecy. As good readers of the Old Testament, they would have been aware of this prophecy. And they would have known that the prophecy stated that the Mount of Olives would split into and the Messiah would set up his throne in Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem throughout the story of Scripture is the royal city. It's the city of the great king, according to Psalm chapter 48. It was the center of messianic expectation. And what I mean by that is throughout the Old Testament, uh, throughout the history of God's people, the nation of Israel, there was built into it this longing, this anticipation of a Messiah, an anointed one who would come to make things new, to make things right. So here's the context, the background. Anytime that Jesus would move uh, in the direction of Jerusalem, anytime he would approach the Mount of Olives, the, di- the disciples would get really, really excited. They would be filled with anticipation about what might happen because they were good readers of the Old Testament. They knew about this prophecy of Zechariah. And so at this point, his disciples are probably thinking, all right, here we go. The time has finally arrived. The moment is here. Jesus is going to be crowned king. Verse 2, Jesus gives two of his disciples very specific, very particular instructions. He tells them, go into uh, the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. I want you to see how Jesus is in control of this situation. Because Jesus is wanting to communicate a certain narrative here in the triumphal entry. And we see that every step of the way, Jesus himself is carefully controlling this narrative so that the narrative, his activity, the action of him entering into Jerusalem tells a very particular story that he intends. And we learn about these specific instructions, these details in this light. His time had come. This is unusual if you're familiar with the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. Because it had been the case, for example, let's say Jesus heals somebody. Jesus would often tell them something along the lines of, all right, keep this to yourself. Don't um, go making this public. Why? Because the time had not arrived. Jesus knew when that that word started really spreading broadly, that he was healing people, that he was uh, performing miracles, that the religious leaders who were already suspicious and on edge would kind of take it to the next level and really seek uh, to put him and his movement um, away. But something has changed. Jesus is ready to go public. He's ready to go public, and he's ready to make the declaration that he identifies as king. It's all carefully planned. Now, along with the careful planning of this, keep in mind that at this time, Uh, during Passover, the population of Jerusalem would have swelled probably to three times its normal size. So the city would have been abuzz with activity. And this is on top of the fact that Jerusalem was uh, an important place anyway. Uh, Earlier this week on Tuesday, I traveled to Washington, D.C. just for the day to meet with some pastors in our denomination. And uh, it's probably only the third time that I've spent time in D.C. Uh, I haven't been there often. 
Um, but what struck me really from the time that I got off the train, started to walk around in the city, and for the remaining time that I was there, is that it strikes you as a really important place. I felt really important. And I'm just one person among millions, but I just felt like I have a really important meeting today. My meeting really wasn't all that important, but it felt like I was there for an important business. DC has that effect on you. And Jerusalem would have had a similar effect for different reasons. It was the hub of activity, both political activity and religious activity. And so Jesus knew here that during Passover, that activity would have been even at a higher level. So again, this is, even the, the timing of this is carefully planned and chosen by Jesus. He really is ready to go public. It's strange to us that Jesus would borrow a donkey to ride on, right? Why would Jesus borrow a donkey? It might seem strange to us, but this was actually a fairly common practice in the day of Jesus. When a, 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 royal, a royal person of any kind would arrive in town, they would often borrow uh, or even commandeer a mount to ride into town on. So while strange to us, this is actually normal. But at the same time, it's not normal. And so we pause here to ask the question, who is this? Who is this? Jesus' actions here are an open dec declaration that he is the Messiah, that he is a king. Verse 3, um, that response that he gives uh, in his instructions, if they ask why, what is the response there to give? The Lord needs them. Jesus refers to himself as Lord. He is the one orchestrating all of these events in a very careful manner as we've already seen. And in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And so we get insight, uh, especially here, into what Jesus is doing. Jesus in himself is seeking to embody the prophecy of the Old Testament. From Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 in particular. Jesus was seeking to fulfill the words of this prophet. And that's important to remember because the text is clear. Jesus needed them to fulfill what he was saying. Now, he didn't need them in the sense that Jesus couldn't exist or accomplish what he wanted to apart from, um, apart from himself. But he sought to use all of these uh, ordinary events, all of these ordinary things, even a donkey, even the owner of this donkey, he sought to use them for, to fulfill the prophecy of the Old Testament. He says, the Lord needs them. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought him the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So we've already seen how Jesus himself is identifying as king, but now we are getting insight into how the people, the crowds themselves, are identifying Jesus as king. They're receiving this public declaration of kingship. Cloaks symbolize the crowd's submission to Jesus as king. The, the spreading of these represented a, a royal... Uh, Homage. It was a sign of paying tribute, like kind of like rolling out a red carpet um, 
in, in our contemporary uh, setting. By laying down their cloaks, they were giving Jesus a kingly welcome. They, in other words, were interpreting all of this correctly. They were interpreting it accurately. Jesus is declaring to be king, and they are treating him as such. The branches symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory. They were connected with prominent Jewish festivals and victories, particularly the festival of the tabernacles. And then in verse 9, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What is meant here? Well, Hosanna means save us, O God, something like that. Save us, O God. And it comes from the Psalms. And specifically, the crowds of people are reciting Psalm 118, verses 25 through 27. So now we find the crowds drawing from the Old Testament to make connection to this situation that is unfolding. We could summarize this by saying that these people, as we've already touched on, these people, this crowd, these crowds are giving Jesus a royal welcome. All of these things were signs of loyalty to royalty. Yes, that does rhyme. Was it not intended? They're all signs of loyalty to royalty. But who is this? Who is Jesus? Jesus is publicly declaring himself to be king. And then finally, verse 10 says that when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? That's the question, right? It's a million-dollar question. The crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The whole city was stirred up to this point. And their question is the question that we're after this morning, the question that we're pursuing, who is this? The religious establishment feared Jesus. I, I mentioned this earlier. They feared him because they feared that he would usurp their power. There's a lot to say about power here, and we'll, we're actually going to get into it a little bit more in a couple minutes. But the religious leaders throughout the Gospels are always suspicious of Jesus, and it's particularly because they view him as a threat to their power. And so when they see what the crowds are doing, when the crowds as a whole are, are, are doing this, Anybody who knew anything about anything would know the prophetic implications of what's happening here and what Jesus was declaring about himself. So let's come back to the question that we're really raising in this sermon. Who is this? And I want to make this a personal question for you right now. Who is this? Who do you believe Jesus to be? Some might respond that he's a good teacher, and that's it. Others might respond that he's a prophet, and that's it. But at the very least, what I want you to see is who, how Jesus perceived himself. And Jesus perceived himself, he identified himself as more than simply a good teacher, more than simply a good prophet. And I would go as far as to say this, that if, um, if this is not true about himself, if he's not actually a, a, a king, then it kind of falsifies whatever else you might think about him as teacher and prophet. I realize that that's a bold claim. But Jesus, again, is not simply just claiming to be a teacher or a prophet. He's claiming to be a king. And if he's lying about that, he's not a very good teacher or prophet. Who do you think Jesus is? This whole idea of Jesus as king is really hard for us. 
The idea of anyone as king is really hard for us, I think, isn't it? It's hard for me. Why? Because we resist authority. We want to think of ourselves as always being in control. We want to be the one calling shots of our lives. But discipleship to Jesus, submission to Jesus, relationship to Jesus requires us to declare that you are king of my life, you are in control, and in the end, you get to call the shots for my life. And this um, is hard for us individually, but it's really hard for us as a culture. David Brooks earlier this year uh, wrote an article called The Morality of Selfism. The subtitle was The Gospel of Saint You. The Gospel of Saint You. That's how we operate, isn't it? We operate as though we are the final authority over life. We operate as though we have to be the ones calling all the shots. Rosalind uh, Picard is founder and director of the Effective Commuting Research Group at MIT. She's a follower of Jesus at this point in her life, but that has not always been the case. She came to follow Jesus uh, as a college student. Uh, There was an article written about her called, An MIT Professor Meets the Author of All Knowledge. And in this article, she says, she talks about um, her journey of faith and how uh, her freshman year of college, uh, she was uh, pretty much an atheist. um, And her friend, she begins to seek a little bit at this point, and a friend invites her to church. And she hears a sermon. She writes this, but the pastor got my attention when he asked, who is Lord of your life? He discussed what happens when you, a human being, put yourself on the throne. She goes on to say, I was intrigued. I was the captain of my ship, but it was possible that God would actually be willing to lead me. From there, I came to a deeper understanding of what it meant to have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. It seemed silly to pray about this. After all, I still had doubts about God's existence. But in the spirit of Pascal's wager, I decided to run an experiment believing I had much to gain, but very little to lose. After praying, Jesus Christ, I ask you to be Lord of my life. My world changed dramatically, as if a flat black and white existence suddenly turned full color and three-dimensional. But I lost nothing of my urge to seek new knowledge. In fact, I felt emboldened to ask even tougher questions about how the world works. I felt joy and freedom, but also a heightened sense of responsibility and challenge." What is at the heart of Rosalind Picard's journey of faith? It's really this struggle, this wrestling with Jesus as king, with Jesus as Lord. And what we typically think, kind of our default mode of thinking, is that when we submit to the authority of someone else, it kills us, right? It diminishes us as human beings. But Rosalind Picard's experience was actually the opposite. It was quite different. When she submitted to the authority, to the kingship of Jesus, life opened up in ways that she never imagined. There was freedom that she could have never known when she was living as the captain of her own ship, as she put it. Jesus is king. Do you submit to his authority? Do you follow his instructions, his word? Do you seek to bring your life into alignment with his kingdom? You know, in the same way that Jesus is wanting to utilize and leverage the resources around him in this situation, the resources of his disciples, the donkey, 
the owner of the donkey, all of these things. He wants to leverage and use the resources in our lives as well for the sake of his kingdom. He wants to leverage our money, our relationships, our vocation, our, our sexuality, our homes, every aspect of us, every part of our lives he wants to use for his purposes and plans. Why should we submit to his kingship? And this brings us to the second and final thing that I want us to see in response to that question of who is this? Yes, Jesus is king, but he's also savior. There are many voices and persons of authority out there, aren't there? So many, so many. They're all vying for our allegiance, calling us to give our loyalty to them. So in the midst of all of those voices, why should we submit to the authority of Jesus? How can we know that we can trust him? We noted how it was considered a privilege to have your mount used by the king or prince or general or or, or famous teacher as you rode into a town. But I, I made note, and I didn't, go into, I didn't mention it then, but there's something unusual about Jesus choosing a donkey. Something very unusual. Normally, somebody in the capacity of Jesus wanting to make a declaration of his power, of his royalty, of his influence, would probably f- find the most beautiful and proud stallion. Right? That would be a good choice, to ride into the city, and it would show victory and conquest. The meaning would be quite clear. But the colt, the donkey, was just the opposite. The donkey or colt shows humility and peace. And this is what I mean about Jesus carefully orchestrating and planning all of this down to the very last detail. It wasn't because there was no stallion or beautiful animal Uh, for Jesus to find and ride into town on. This was his choice in fulfillment of prophecy. He did not want to enter into Jerusalem riding a beautiful horse or driving a chariot. He didn't want to wear a crown. He didn't want to carry a sword as many royal persons would have done. Donkeys were used occasionally, but when they were, they were for civil, not military processions. This would have been confusing to the crowds in Jerusalem. It would have been something that they made note of. Verse 5, that prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. I ask you, who is this? The people thought that they were getting a military messiah someone who was going to judge and fight and rule um, over the Romans that were in charge. Jesus wanted the people to see him differently. They did not want the, uh, the, he did not want them to see him as a military leader coming with power, although he had all of the power in the universe. He had every right to do so. He chose to come humbly in order to communicate a certain narrative and a certain message. He came essentially saying, I come in peace. He came not to destroy, but to create. Not to condemn, but to help and save. Not in the might of arms, but in the strength of love. Jesus was definitely making a claim. 
If we were Jews at the time looking for the Messiah's coming, we would have interpreted things in the same way as they did. We would have been looking for this Messiah, for this leader, to make his move in order to overthrow the Roman Empire. But we're confronted with this question, as the crowds were, who is this? This is kind of a satire, really. Jesus is giving us a satire on triumphal entries. You might actually think of it as how not to do a triumphal entry. Kind of, in a weird way, the point of all of this. It's not what you would expect, and no one else who's wanting to come in power as king to show off himself and what he brings with him, no one else would want to come in the way that Jesus did. But this was carefully chosen. It was carefully planned. Tim Keller, in a pastor from New York City, commenting on this, says, on the one hand, this looks like all other triumphal entries. 200 years earlier, Simon Maccabees had defeated foreign enemies and kept Israel independent, and he rode into Jerusalem with people shouting cheers and waving palm branches because he delivered them. The triumphal entry parodies the entries of kings and armies. Victors in battle do not ride into their capital city riding on asses, but on fearsome horses. But this kind does not, and he will not triumph through force of arms. Who is this? Who is this? Prior to this event, immediately before this event in Matthew's telling of the Gospels, Jesus has interaction with a mother actually the mother of two of the disciples. And she comes to Jesus with a very valid question. She loves her sons, who are Jesus' closest followers. And she says, Jesus, when you set up your earthly kingdom, will you allow for one of my sons to be on your right and the other to be on your left? Now, you know, we we kind of view this as really bold, um, demanding, but she's a mother, right? She loves her son. She wants what is best for them, and she wants them to be taken care of in the kingdom of Jesus. And, you know, this gets interpreted in funny ways um, among those who are present, but Jesus ultimately says this to his disciples. He, he actually uses it as a teaching moment for his disciples. And this is a teaching moment for myself, for Wayne, for elder candidates. Whoever would be great among you, you must be, must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you, you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. After this teaching moment, two blind men were sitting on the roadside in Jericho. And they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The crowds rebuke them, basically telling them to shut up telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more. Jesus stopped. He acknowledges them. He calls them, and he heals their sight. Who is this? This is a humble king. This is a savior. And as we wrap this up, humble and king don't typically go together. In fact, they seem mutually exclusive. And I don't know if that's the case for you, but in my own life experience, I don't tend to associate king with humble, right? They almost seem contradictory because of life in a fallen world. A king can't be humble, can he? We have too many examples of this not being the case. 
So I come back to the question that I introduced earlier. There are so many voices and persons of authority. Why should I, why should you submit to Jesus' authority? Why can we trust him? The answer is because he's humble. He's a different kind of king. He's not only a king, but he's a savior. And Jesus, through the way that he orchestrated these events, is declaring that, yes, he's king, Yes, he's coming to rule with power, but his power is different because he doesn't come to kill, but he comes to actually lose his power and be killed. This is incredibly different. This is incredibly unique when we think about what we're used to. Rosalind Picard, the woman uh, who uh, teaches at MIT that I mentioned earlier, at the end of that interview, she says, "'Today I walk humbly.'" having received the most undeserved grace. I walk with joy alongside the most amazing companion anyone could ask for. This is not a contradiction in her life, is it? Because remember the driving force that led her to faith. It was the lordship of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus, submitting to his authority. But then she's able to say that she's received the most undeserved grace, that she walks with joy alongside the most amazing companion, referencing Jesus, anyone could ask for. With Jesus, these two things, king uh, king and humble, king and humility, are not mutually exclusive. They are perfectly embodied in the person of Jesus. So I ask you one final time, who is this? This is a humble king. And it's hard to believe. It's hard to accept. It's hard to accept Jesus as king, but it's, it's also hard for us to accept Jesus as savior, as, as humble. We're obsessed with power. We, we, even though we may look at this narrative and say, this is so beautiful that Jesus didn't come like other kings, we, at this moment in life, we actually... Um, we, we want a, pow- a king with power that manifests itself in the kind of authority that would destroy people and uh, make everything right in this moment. And Jesus does have all of that power, and he promises to come again to judge, and that's true. But in this coming of Jesus, beginning with the triumphal entry, he comes to save. Ultimately, we don't want to face our weakness. We don't want to have to admit that we are in need of a savior, that we can't save ourselves, we can't save the world. We don't like to admit that. It's hard. And so it's hard to accept Jesus as king, but it's also hard to accept Jesus as savior. But as we learn this about Jesus, about who he is, when we're able by faith to answer this question accurately, that Jesus is king, that Jesus is savior, Our lives are filled with joy that we didn't know was imaginable. They're filled with freedom that we didn't know was imaginable in submitting to the authority of someone else. But in Jesus, this is possible because he's different. Jesus is king. Jesus is savior. This is who he is. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being different. We thank you for being unusual in terms of what we might expect and anticipate from the Messiah who would come. We acknowledge that you are king. You have all authority, all power in the universe. And we bow humbly because you came humbly. 
We bow in light of the salvation that is ours through faith in you. You came to serve. You came to lay down your life for us. And so we worship you as king and we worship you as savior. We pray that as your people, that you would help us to grow in Christ's likeness, that in our own lives, we would be able to embody authority in appropriate ways in the various spheres of life in which you've called us, but that we would also do so humbly in response to what you've done for us, but also as we're called by your spirit to become more like you. We trust that you're able to do these things because you are good and you love your people. And so we submit our, ourselves to you. We submit every aspect of our lives to you, and we anticipate how you will leverage and use our lives in order to tell your story and extend your kingdom. Pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.